to anoint him, strengthen him. God, soften our hearts. May your word permeate our lives, our minds. God, may all inhibitions fade away. May we receive from you tonight. Holy Spirit, won't you come and impress on our hearts your agenda for us. Lord, as Shane unpacks the word, may it be powerfully at work within us and within him. And may there be a flow of freedom and anointing tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I'm glad Howard's not here tonight. Can I explain that? So last week I preached in the, at the 8 o'clock morning service, and then at the 10 o'clock, when I got up to preach at 10 o'clock, my notes had gone. I'm like, I looked around all over the show, and Howard was sitting with them smiling. <laughs> so don't trust that man. I also want you to know, we're going to be practical tonight, so uh, Brad announced about that food afterwards, and you're going to pay 25 rand and then donate your food to somebody, and just fast tonight. Is that okay? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But it would be a great idea if you were to pay 25 rand and then take your food and give it to somebody, because that would be an awesome way of being practical as to how God has spoken to you during this message. I really don't want this to be a theological disposition of, of what fasting is all about, and we just go away and say, well, we've stimulated our minds, and we've got some good understanding, and now at least we know what it's all about. But I really am trusting that God's going to touch our hearts and turn this into something that we can use uh, in a practical way on a regular basis so that fasting becomes a habit that we get into. A habit because we want to get closer and closer to God. We want to understand Him more, and we want to dig into who He is. So, Lord, I pray that that would be the case tonight. Lord, I pray that you would help us not just to have our ears tickled, but that, Lord, something would settle in our spirits, Lord, that would change us, that we can walk in your ways and know who you are, yeah, and get closer to you. Amen. If people take the literal meaning of Scripture and, and they, they twist it or they don't take it as literally as it is, then they tend to spiritualize it and it robs it of its potency. The truth just becomes nebulous. It's, it's like a vapor. Its edge is blunted and it ceases to have any kind of practical application. And I think that's what's happened with the evangelical church when it comes to fasting. People say... It's not simply nor necessarily to abstain from food, but anything that hinders our communication with God or our communion with God. And so they say, well, I can fast television or I can fast, you know, um, uh, TV games or, or computer games. I can, I can fast uh, soccer. I won't, I won't play soccer for a while. But really what fasting really means is if you look at the definition of fasting, uh, it's, it's largely and, and primarily to not eat. We practice self-denial, but the truth remains to fast means to not eat. So a lot of people have said, well, I'm going to fast Facebook. I'm going to fast chocolate. Oh, I won't swear for a while. Uh, I, won't, I won't take any alcohol. And the true definition of fasting is a total... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I also don't like bell peppers. I'd also put tape across my mouth. The true definition of fasting is this. It's a total or partial abstinence from food for a limited period of time, usually undertaken for moral or religious reasons. 
Now, if you love food too much to fast, then you should have been a Zoroastrian. Because Zoroastrians, uh, for them, uh, yeah, fasting was forbidden. So if you really like food, become a Zoroastrian. No, don't. And be thankful that you're not locked into Zainism. Because Zainism says this. It teaches that the believer's goal is a life of passionless detachment culminating ideally in death by voluntary starvation. Well, I'm glad I'm not a Jainist. My first experience of fasting goes back to 1977, 78. My wife Sandra was diagnosed with Hodgkin's, which is terminal cancer. At that stage, it was terminal. The doctor said to me, uh, she may see Christmas. This was in September, just after Anne, our first daughter, was born. And uh, I was in a church that was very traditional. It was a Baptist church, but it was a straight up and down Baptist church, two-thirds of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we didn't know about. And uh, we, we, didn't know, we didn't know the power of the Holy Spirit. But the pastor said to us, let's fast and pray for a week, and let's trust God. And so we did. The whole church fasted and prayed. We had a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, and it was due to go in for final tests on the Thursday. And on Wednesday night, we came together. We broke the fast. We laid hands on her, and we prayed and asked God to touch her. And the following day on Thursday, when she went in for all the tests, the doctors came out and said, well, we, uh, we're going to have to run those again because they're all negative, and something's gone wrong. <laughs> Nothing had gone wrong. God had touched her. And I was blown away. I have a friend, Rob, I won't give you a surname, who was, God had blessed him with the ministry of healing. And Rob, because of that, decided that he wanted to have four Sunday nights to give an opportunity for a community to come together and to have healing under the power of the Holy Spirit. So they set up a tent, they advertised in the community that they were in, and they fasted and prayed for a week or two before and came the first night, and there was an incredible move of God. Just people all over that tent were just healed of amazing things. Um, like cancer was healed. Literally the blind saw, the deaf heard, and the lame walked. It was just an incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the following week, they fasted again. And they came together on the Sunday night, and nothing happened. Nothing. Not one person was healed. And so Rob said to his team, well, let's not fast, because it seems like that doesn't make any difference. So they didn't fast the following week. And they came together on Sunday night, and God just moved in incredible power. And there were people that were healed all over that tent. And so they didn't fast the next week, and nothing happened. And I guess what I learned from that was you can't manipulate God. Matthew 6 says this. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I found it interesting, if we've listened to the last number of sermons, messages over the last few weeks. There are three when in Matthew 6. When you give, 
to the needy. Not if you give to the needy, but when you give to the needy. And there's a writer that comes with that and says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Then the second uh, when you is when you pray. Not if you pray, but when you pray. And when you pray, go into your room, shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And verse 16 we read here, when you fast. It's not if you fast, when you fast. It's an imperative. When you fast. Anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others. So these statements are unambiguous. It's when you. It's expected. They're categorical. They were given without qualification, and they were given to all of the disciples. And Jesus left no doubt that he took it for granted that the disciples would give, they would pray, and they would fast. And we're disciples. We should give, we should pray, we should fast. So it's not a case of if, it's a case of when. So why is it we're so reticent to fast? Interestingly, Jesus dealt with prayer and with fasting as two distinctly different uh, disciplines. Fasting and praying are often linked together, but not necessarily inseparable. And just as there may be praying without fasting, so at times there may be fasting, which is truly acceptable to God, without praying. When we read in Esther, the, when we read of the, the fast in Esther, uh, there was no mention of prayer. In the fast of the prophets and the teachers in Antioch, they were giving themselves to worship rather than to prayer. So I want to share with you three types of fast that I've come across in the Bible, and there may be more, but I want to share three. The first one is the normal fast. Jesus fasted, and afterwards he was hungry. It simply means he abstained from food. Now it says we're told he ate nothing, but we weren't told, as in other scenarios, that he did not drink. So it says he ate nothing. Thirst pangs are more intense than hunger pangs, but we're told he was hungry. So if he, had, if he had not had anything to drink, then he would have been thirsty as well. And Satan tempted Jesus to eat, not to drink, suggesting that the fast was abstaining from food and not from water. This is probably the scariest one, is the absolute fast. Because the absolute fast says uh, that we take nothing, neither drink nor food. And there are numerous accounts in the Old Testament of absolute fasts. And they're never more than three days because you will know physiologically, if we go more than three days without liquid, without intake of water, then we're probably going to die. And it would be harmful to our health. So the body can't go for a long time without water. It can go for a long time without food. It's not uncommon for people who are, who are um, conscientious objectors or people that are in prison fasting in order to, to manipulate the system. And I think the longest that I heard of was 120 days without food. But you could never go for more than three days, four days without water. Ezra spent the night neither eating nor drinking water. For he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles, we read in Ezra. Then we read of Esther. And Queen Esther instructed Mordecai, Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Desperate times called for desperate measures. Then we read of Saul of Tarsus. 
who arrived in Damascus after he had encountered the Holy Spirit and the risen Christ on the way to Damascus. Remember his encounter where he was on his horse or on his, his donkey, whatever, yeah, donkey, uh, and he was struck off the donkey and met God face to face. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And that encounter not only changed his personal destiny, but also shaped the history of the Christian church. There's some accounts we read in the, in the scriptures that must have been of a supernatural nature. Because, for example, Moses goes up into the mountain to go and meet with God, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Complete, absolute fast. No food and nothing to drink. We read that in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. And then he received the Ten Commandments. He goes down and he finds that the Israelite people have made a graven image, a golden calf, and they're worshiping the golden calf. And he's distraught. And he goes back up the mountain almost immediately and fasts another 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time, 80 days and 80 nights without food or water. That must have been divinely inspired and divinely empowered. We read of Elijah who is on his way to, to Horeb. And it seems that he, he, he is under, that's undertaken during an absolute fast as well. Under the juniper tree, he's escaping from Jezebel. He's awakened by an angel. The angel provides him a freshly baked cake and water, and, and he's told to eat twice. And then it says in 1 Kings, he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. Interestingly, that both Moses and Elijah had a very different end to their lives. It wasn't a natural death. They were translated. And also interestingly is that both of them appeared with Christ on the temple, on the, on the, on the mount, the holy mount. It would seem that the holy fast is an exceptional measure, the absolute fast is an exceptional measure for exceptional circumstances. And then there's the partial fast. The emphasis here is on the restriction of diet rather than complete abstention. The beginning of Daniel, we introduced to Daniel and his three companions, and they've been chosen because of, their, uh, because of their noble heritage, their birth, and their intellectual attainments. They've been chosen to serve in the presence of the king of Babylon. And so they choose not to eat of the fare that is presented to them by the king. And so they choose to eat vegetables and to drink water. And at the end of the 10 days period of the test period, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's rich food. Later in Daniel, he receives a revelation from God concerning the future of his people Israel. And he describes how he sought the Lord for understanding of the vision that he'd got. And in those days, it says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. Nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Daniel chapter 10. And there was spiritual victory over the powers of darkness as well as the unfolding of the, the message and the vision by the angelic messenger. Similarly, when Elijah is preparing, um, in his spiritual preparation, we read, At, at Cherith the ravens brought him meat and bread morning and evening. And he drank from the brook. And later, at the widow's home, he was sustained by simple cakes made from meal and oil, a partial fast. John the Baptist fasted. He ate locusts and wild honey. 
That's interesting. Then we read also of people like John Wesley, out, out of Scripture, but John Wesley, who in his early days in Georgia, adopted a diet of dry bread when he was dealing with the case of demon possession. Reese Howells, an incredible intercessor, fasted for weeks at a time. He fasted dinner in the evening when God was preparing him for new work. It's useful for if we're young, if we're aged, take note, some of us, or if for physical reasons and for medical reasons we can't risk having a total fast. And it's also possibly a, a good stepping stone into other types of fasting. So I want to just share with you some, some thoughts. You know, we live in a society that's so caught up in health, and, and we, we, we're on diets, and we've, we've got this banting, and we've got that, and we've got all these other different things that are going on, and, and, and people are getting fanatical about dieting and looking after their bodies. And you go to the supermarket, you see the shelves packed with, I mean, every variety of flour, cassava flour and tapioca flour and this kind of flour and flour flour and um, like there's all sorts of sweeteners so that we don't take sugar there's all sorts of supplements to our food and health foods and alternatives to normal foods and meal replacement shakes and herbal detox agents and the list goes on and on and on I've been tempted myself it's working <laughs> well, fasting is making a comeback there's, if, you, if you go online and just, just look at the, um, the intermediate fast or the intermittent fast, uh, it's making a comeback. People are taking time to fast one day a week in order to detox their bodies. I just want to say that's not what it's all about. It may be useful, it may be helpful, it may be healthy, but that's not what fasting is all about. For nearly 150 years, fasting was out of vogue in the church because it was linked with medieval Christianity, perhaps high church practice, or, or even, as in the case of Mahatma Gandhi, a weapon of passive resistance. Anyone practicing fasting was deemed to be extreme or fanatical. And others had misgivings about fasting because it was synonymous with starving, and they feared it would have harmful results. And Ephesians 5 verse 29 was taken as a clear indication against fasting, where it says, no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So they said, yeah, well, if that's what the Scripture says, then, you know, fasting's not for us. And then people warn, be careful. You live such a busy life, you can't afford to get run down. This young-looking man, Arthur Wallace, said this. Fasting is important. More important, perhaps, than many of us have supposed. For all that, it is not a major biblical doctrine. It's not a foundation stone of the faith or panacea for every spiritual ill. Nevertheless, when exercised with a pure heart and a right motive, fasting may provide us with a key to unlock doors where other keys have failed, a window opening up new horizons in the unseen world, a spiritual weapon of God's providing mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. So I want to give a few suggestions as to why we fast. And primarily, fasting is a ministry to God. 
Zechariah 7 verse 5 says, When you fasted, was it for me that you fasted? In Acts 13 verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, it was ministry to God. So much of what we do is ruled by the principle of what is in it for me? What will I get out of it? Much emphasis in fasting is placed on personal benefit or for impartation of power or for spiritual gifts or, or for physical healing or for specific answers to prayer. But in his first statement on fasting, Jesus brings us back to the real point, the question of our motives. God's not only concerned with what we do, but why we do it. And a right act may be robbed of its value because of wrong motives. In Isaiah 58, we read this. Why have we fasted and you see it not? And the swift answer from God is this. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasures and oppress all your workers. And the fast that they did were motivated by self-interest and self-seeking. No wonder God answers indignantly, indignantly, is this the fast that I choose? So fasting should be as a ministry to God with a basic motive being the glory of God. Joel cries out, sanctify a fast. He means set it apart for God. And forget the matters of personal gain and are caught up in his wonder and his love and his praise as we fast unto God. We find ourselves like Anna the prophetess who worshipped and fasted and prayed. Or like the leaders of the church in Antioch who ministered to the Lord and fasted. So fasting primarily, a giving of ourselves to God and only secondarily as a means to a spiritual end. Now he's not as young looking as the other guy. So John Wesley back in 1700s. He said this, First let it be done unto the Lord, with our eyes singly fixed on Him. Let our intention be this, and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven, to express our sorrow and shame for our manifold transgressions of His holy law, to wait for an increase of purifying grace, drawing our affections to things above, to add seriousness and earnestness to our prayers, to avert the wrath of God and to obtain all the great and previous promises which he has made to us in Jesus Christ. Let us be beware of fancying we merit anything of God by our fasting. We cannot be too often warned of this inasmuch as a desire to establish our own righteousness to procure salvation of debt and not of grace is so deeply rooted in all our hearts. Fasting is only a way which God has ordained wherein we wait for his unmerited mercy. And wherein, without any desert of ours, he has promised freely to give us his blessing. So first, let it be done unto the Lord. The second reason for fasting is for personal holiness. In Psalm 69 verse 10, I wept and humbled my soul with fasting. In Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn. And Jesus links mourning and fasting together. Humility is the basic, of ingredi basic ingredients of holiness. And it's a soil in which grace flourishes. And it's true that we must then, like David, humble our souls with fasting. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is most often referred to as sexual deviation in nature. And in Ezekiel 16, verse 49, we read this, 
Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and needy. We'll come back to that verse later. Moses spoke of the people of Israel. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. And there were a few temptations in the land that they were about to possess. And Moses warns the Israelites, and he says to them, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rule and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God. It was a warning that he gave. Hosea tells us that's exactly what happened. In Hosea 13, when they had grazed, they became full, and they were filled, and their hearts was lifted up, and therefore they forgot me. Fasting was one of the ways in which God deals with the pride of the human heart. Ezra proclaims this. He says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God. Matthew 9, verse 14 and 15. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, this is the second time that he talks about fasting. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? There's a natural sequence that moves from self-humbling to the morning of repentance and sorrow. There are a number of biblical accounts of Israel fasting and repentance over personal sin. I'm going to move on. Fasting is consecration to God. Jesus fasted prior to his ministry. He received the Spirit and fullness at his baptism. Remember the Holy Spirit came upon him when he came out of the water? But his power was only fully released until he had been, he'd been in the desert fasting and he'd been tested. It was his final preparation and consecration for his mission. When Paul and Barnabas were set aside, it was after fasting and prayer in Acts 13. When they appointed elders in the church, it was with prayer and fasting. So fasting is consecration and readiness for ministry and readiness for what God's going to do. Fasting to change God's mind. And the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And when they saw what they did, when God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. They changed God's mind. Fasting to free the captives. Isaiah 58 verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. And to break every yoke. And then fasting for Revelation. I, Daniel, turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. The man Gabriel, I put some verses together. The man Gabriel made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. And then fasting to be heard. 
In Ezra 8 verse 23, we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. In Isaiah 58, the challenging passage on fasting, <laughs> Yo, we'll get to it now just briefly. God reveals a self-seeking and self-pleasing that lies behind the show of piety and then unfolds the character of the fast that he's chosen. And this kind of fasting brings blessing to others as well as to the one fasting. In Jeremiah 29, we read, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, declares the Lord. When a man's prepared, man, woman, when we're prepared to lay aside the normal appetites of our body in order to focus more on prayer, and we're demonstrating we mean business with God. We're seeking with all our heart, and we won't let go of God until He answers. And Joel 2 gives a similar cry to the whole nation. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered. So just seven reasons for fasting. But I want to move on quickly to true fasting. Because this would be replete if we weren't to talk about Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 reads like this. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow, like, bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? And will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Is it not to sacrifice? Is it not to, to abase ourselves so that we can be a blessing to others? Is it not to help those who are caught up in poverty and kailicha and have now lost everything? I had the privilege of being at Justice Conference uh, a week ago. And on the Friday afternoon, we had a breakout session. And I was sitting in the breakout session, and they were, they were talking about the disparity between the rich and the poor in our country, and the, the hurt and the pain that goes with that. And there was an Enchia Dermini who asked a question, and he started weeping as he asked. He said, please, guys. The, the team of guys that had just presented with three people of color. He said, please, you've got to help me. He said, I used to be in the riot police. He said, I, I was guilty of the, the most abominable atrocities. He said, I came to Jesus. He said, I repented. I had a conversion because of that. And since then, I've had several times when I've had deep spiritual experiences with God, and I've, I've come to him, and I've repented of those things. 
But now I'm a pastor of a church of 5,000 people in Durbanville. And he said, I can't get my people to change their hearts. Help me. He was weeping. Help me. He said, I asked him, I asked him, please can you contribute? Please can you come? Please can you do? Please can we go together? Can we go into the township? Can we go and help the poor? Can we go and do this? Can we go and do that? And they just write bigger checks and bigger checks and bigger checks because it's so easy for them to do that. Nothing wrong with our wealth. Nothing wrong with our checkbooks. If they're used to alleviate pain. But if we're not using our hands, our feet, our compassion, our tongue, our time, our efforts, not humbling ourselves and abasing our own self-seeking and self-pleasing, then there's something tragically wrong with just using our checkbook. Remember I read from Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and the needy. Church, let's not be guilty of the guilt of the sin of Sodom. God's chosen fast is appointed by God. This is the fast that I choose. It's set aside for God. It ministers to God. It honors and glorifies God. It's designed to accomplish His sovereign will. And then, and then, it's saturated with blessings on us. It brings rewards, open-handed rewards from God. And it avoids the blessings meaning more than the blesser. Let's not be guilty of the sin of Sodom. A true fast is giving yourself to God. Lord, help us. Lord, help us that we, we don't become religious about this. Help us, Lord, that we don't become academic about it. Help us, Lord, that we understand what it really means to put our own thoughts and our own desires aside and to be what you've designed for us to be, your hands and your feet in our communities, your voice in our communities, your heart for our communities. Lord, help us to, to get closer to you, Lord, that we understand what a true fast really is. But then, Lord, also help us to understand the discipline of fasting food so that we can get closer to you and learn more of your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.